Amen. If you've got uh, elementary age kiddos, we would love for them to be a part of what we have happening. Nirvana Kids Time, I think Miss Angela is walking that direction. Is that correct? Okay. And we're also bringing them back here. So you won't have to go and track your kiddos down in that narrow hallway. Directly following that last song or during that last worship song, we'll be bringing all the kiddos elementary age back in here. So believe it or not, it's been, uh, well, since the last week in February, since we've actually had elementary age stuff, February of 2000, whatever that was, a decade ago or something, um, since we've actually had our uh, Vine Kids elementary time, which is really, really crazy. It's just been such a wild year. Brandon and I were talking yesterday about just how different everything feels, even during this Easter week. It just feels like everything's got a different air. But having come here this morning, it feels a little bit like old home week. Um, seeing a bunch of people I haven't seen in a long time, which is super cool, which always happens at Easter. But more exciting is just the fact that people are here that we uh, haven't seen in a while. It feels like we should have a picnic and a fishing derby and break out our letter jackets or whatever because it is fun to see everybody. So we are glad you're here. I know Megan Matulis told us we ran out of coffee for the first time in ever, which is like a victory of sorts. I mean, it just feels like, man, this is so good. Until next week when it's just me and Brandon and uh, we're all back to normal again. No, we're, uh, we're really, really excited that we can be here together and worship and, and we recognize that we are moving in a direction to where things will feel a little bit more uh, like they used to. But things will be different for a while and that's okay. We're going to embrace it fully. But we are really glad that you're here. Like I mentioned, we've started this journey through the book of Hebrews. It's a deep, rich, incredibly theologically powerful book in which we're called to understand the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ in all things, and, and it's, it's just deeply rich and engaging. And so we started that. We're three weeks in. We hope you will join us next week and the weeks that follow as we continue that series um, in which we've just entitled Hope and Glory. We experience this sort of incredible picture of the hope of the idea that Jesus is the, the glory of God fully revealed and that we can anchor ourselves to this truth that we're given about Christ in Scripture. It's very, very cool. So we hope you'll be a part of that. But this morning we're going to take a little bit of a break, um, not because of Hebrews doesn't point us to Jesus. All of Scripture, whether it's Old or New Testament, actually points us to the person of the resurrected Christ. Um, and you can actually get to the resurrection from any point in Scripture, which is incredible and amazing. And, um, but I thought we'd take a little bit of a different look this morning and, and actually explore some of the events that have unfolded on Easter morning since it's been over a year since we've actually celebrated Easter really together. I thought it would be a great look at that. And as I was kind of looking at these events this week, right, and there's really four that we kind of hallmark around Holy Week, right, the big four, which would be Palm Sunday, the week kind of uh, begins with this idea, uh, goes into the last Supper, and then we have Good Friday, and then we find ourselves on Easter morning. And those events are really hallmarked by the sort of the main pictures of those things. But they're really so much deeper. And what we find when we look in Scripture is that the things that surround those events are incredible. They're actually bigger than the events somewhat themselves at times, right? Because it's not just Jesus riding into town on a baby donkey on, uh, on Palm Sunday. It's the expectation and the demands of the people and the idea that they were hoping for this political king and they had these expectations that were not built on these sort of promises of God, but instead on the promises of people. And we talk about what the people were longing for and expecting and how those expectations were turned upside down when the creator of the universe essentially rides in on his own death parade. 
on the back of not a stallion or a horse, but this baby donkey. And then we, of course, find ourselves throughout the week having these incredible encounters, and we wind up on Thursday, right, where we celebrate the Last Supper, where Jesus gathers with his group of people, and he points out his own betrayer, someone that has walked with them, where he gathers with these guys that would eventually all desert him and run away. He proclaims to them what's going to unfold. And then he gives them this incredible promise where he removes his clothes, wraps a towel around his waist, and begins to scrub their feet, even the feet of the one that would betray him, Judas, right? And he tells his disciples, he says, listen, the whole world will know you follow me because of how you love one another in this place. It's not just about the breaking of bread, but it's about this incredible promises that Christ is handing on to those that then would carry the message of Christ. And then we find ourselves on that very night, right, all those people literally fleeing from him as he's pursued by this angry mob, this torch-bearing group of people that has come to arrest Jesus. The same crowd that somewhat welcomed him last Sunday is now demanding that he be handed over and they seize Jesus and take him before the authorities and they put him on a sham of a trial and eventually finds himself before Pilate who uh, basically pleads with the Jewish people to say, look, I found nothing wrong with this guy, but doesn't want to incite a rebellion or have this sort of volatile political response. And so he just says, fine, you know, I'll give in to you. And they hands over Barabbas who was essentially a murderer and he takes Jesus and Jesus walks with his own instrument of death, a a tool that was designed really just for humiliation and mockery and slow and painful torture. And he dies upon this hill, right, with all of creation broken. And we see in Scripture earthquakes and the temple curtain torn in two from top to bottom, and all of creation seems to groan, right? All the events that surround those things, the emotions of the people, the cries, right? The guards that are standing there that say, surely this must be the Son of God. All of those things that unfold. And then they get us, gets us to... Easter, which we're all familiar with, of course, the the jubilant sort of excitement that unfolds that morning as we typically celebrate the the women arriving at the tomb and the stone rolled away and the angel sitting upon it and asking Mary what she's looking for and Mary in this deep, real sadness, right? And then John and, and Peter come bursting into the tomb and no one really knows what to do, and we celebrate Easter typically at the church with this jubilant hand clapping kind of excitement over the top experience because we know how this story continues. We have this incredible picture of scripture that not only lays out but lays out the mission of the church, who we are, and what it means for us in terms of redemption. But if you look at the events that surround that morning, it wasn't all that. There was a lot of sadness, there was a lot of questions, there was a lot of fear. And we're going to find ourselves this morning peering away from those first 6 a.m. moments, right, where the sun's just rising and everyone's filled with a little bit of anticipation and excitement. And we're going to move 12 hours down the road and we're going to find the disciples gathered together and not in celebratory, incredible moments, but with a whole lot of fear and a whole lot of what do we do now? Because there were a bunch of unanswered questions. And Jesus, and the incredible nature of who he is, is going to answer those questions in only the way that he can. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to John chapter 20. Um, We're going to be in there for just a little bit this morning. Um, And we're going to look at just a few verses. But I want you to keep in mind where we are in history. All those things have unfolded, all right? And the disciples have gathered together again. It's now evening. 
all the things that have unfolded on that day, all the questions that have surrounded it, they have gathered back together and they are huddled together and they literally are afraid. And so let's take a moment, let's pray, and then we'll open it together and see exactly what it is that Jesus is promising those that put their faith and trust in him. Lord, I am so grateful to be able to gather here today and celebrate the truth of the resurrection. And as I mentioned, not the resurrection is a singular event in human history, but the resurrection really is a person. Where you declare, Lord, I am the resurrection and life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Like you proclaim the truth that you are the embodiment of life over death. And this morning what we celebrate is not the idea that Jesus is real, but that Jesus is fully alive. And Lord, as Paul mentioned, that if the resurrection didn't happen, everything that he believed and marked his entire life on was in total vain. And so, Lord, we come before you to celebrate those incredible promises and truths. Lord, that everything that happened is true. And if it isn't, then everything that we believe is in vain. So our entire faith is staked on these profound, true promises. Take a moment as you sit here this morning and just ask the Lord to teach your heart. Even if it's the same Easter message you may have heard dozens and dozens and dozens of times, the Lord makes it come alive. Just ask him to teach your heart this morning. Take a moment as we do each week and just pray for someone around you. We we want to be in the habit of being a church that cares and prays for other people, that everything unfolds on Sunday is not just about you. Maybe it's your spouse or your child, or maybe you've never seen this person before. Maybe they look new, or maybe they just um, are someone you just shook their hand or met or fist bumped or whatever. Just pray for them. Pray that God would move in them. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Lord, we ask that for the next few moments, that as we open your word and we close our time in worship, you would just fill our hearts with your spirit, Lord. We don't invite you in this place. We know that you're here, Lord, for there is nowhere that we can go to escape your presence. You are in the very air that we breathe. And so, Lord, we just surrender to you. And we ask that you teach our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. So all those events that we just went through have all unfolded, and we're going to bump ourselves about 12 hours down the road. It's now nightfall on Easter Sunday morning. All these things have happened, and yet there's still so many unanswered questions. So let's look at John chapter 20, verse 19, and we'll go for just a few verses. And this is what it says. On the evening of that first day of the week, which would be Sunday, Easter Sunday, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, With the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone of their sins, they will be forgiven. And if you do not forgive them, then they will are not forgiven. So this is the first of the real sort of resurrection appearances we have to the whole group of disciples, which again, remember, is not just the 11. Judas has run off, but the idea of the disciples here is a much larger group 
Um, some numbers range all the way up to 100. Most likely gathered in this room was <clears throat> a bit smaller than that. But it was those that had been following Jesus, walking around the countryside, had put their hope in him, right? It was a much larger number than just the 11. But they had all heard from the women that had come to the tomb, from Mary and Mary Magdalene, even from the disciple that Jesus loved, John and Peter himself, that Jesus wasn't there. There had been some resurrection appearances already where people had said they had seen Jesus, but for the majority of these folks, they're just listening to the accounts of other people. And the day goes by, and there's still no body of Jesus to be found. This is what actually grieved the heart of Mary. You remember her account. She was so broken and sobbing that she meets this person who is Jesus, and he keeps her from recognizing him, and she thinks he's the gardener. And she says, listen, if you have stolen his body, I don't care. Just bring it back. They're just broken. She just wants the body. And there's still no body, and no one really knows what happened, or whether it was the, the, the Romans, or whether this is really a resurrection. There's still so many questions in the air. But one thing is very certain, and that is they're afraid. And they've gathered together out of fear, and very specifically, we'll talk about this in a moment, very specifically fear of the Jewish people. And they're huddled together, and it says, while they're huddled together with the doors locked, Jesus comes and he stands among them and he says, peace be with you. And he says he shows them his hands and his side, and they are overjoyed. And again he says, peace be with you. And he says, essentially, as the Father sent me, I am sending you. Right? My message is essentially your message and breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And if you forgive sins, they're forgiven. And if you don't, then they're not. Essentially, things that God can do, he bestows upon them. And we'll talk about these in just a moment. But it's a really incredible scene. There's a couple of facts in there I want us just to, to acknowledge before we kind of talk about some promises that are, that are built in there. But there's some facts that are really important that we just need to, to kind of identify so that we can really lay out the scenario. And, and the first is that these doors were locked. And it's an important fact, right? Because Jesus comes and he stands among them, but the doors were locked. Jesus is very much risen. He very much has a physical body. He shows them his hands and his side. He's not a ghost or a spirit. But Jesus, in the miraculous moment, appears where they are with these doors locked. He doesn't announce it. He doesn't knock on the door and say, hey, let me in. He just miraculously appears, which shouldn't be a crazy surprise since he literally was raised from the dead. But it's important to understand this because this is the resurrected, miraculous Christ who stands inside the locked doors where these disciples are huddled in fear. And as I started thinking about this, what I really came to realize was that there's a lot of locked doors in our life, right? And not to get too sidetracked, but we lock the doors of our lives and our hearts. We huddle ourselves in rooms all the time over things that we're afraid. We let those fears just seize part of our souls. And the incredible thing, and one of the, one of the incredible things about the nature of God is that locked doors are no problem for Jesus. The locked doors of our heart, of our mind, the metaphor there, it's no problem for him. He knows all things. He comes literally through those doors and he stands among them. But the doors were locked and they were locked for one specific reason. They were afraid of the Jews. Now, this is a really important point because what you have here are a group of people that have put their faith in Christ and believe that Jesus is who he said he was, but have a lot of what happens now questions and they are petrified that they are going to die. That's why they're afraid. 
They're not afraid of the Jews because the Jews are going to come in and be like, ha ha, you're a bunch of losers. They're afraid because the Jews, what they just did was demanded the death of Christ by Roman crucifixion. And if they can do that to Jesus, then they can do that to them. And by proclaiming that they were followers of Christ, they have now put themselves in the encampment that says, if the Jewish leaders demand our death, the Romans will give it to them. Now, there was always a sense that this was a far-fetched idea. The Jews would never come after their own. They were being occupied by the Romans. They were politically oppressed. They were more interested in pushing the Romans back than they were even their own. But when they sold Jesus essentially out for Barabbas, demanded his death, those Jewish followers of Christ realized that they were next. And that by proclaiming that Jesus was their leader, their teacher, their rabbi, their Lord, they were afraid they were going to die. And I don't think we understand this quite enough, right? Because Easter for us is this incredible celebration. We change our clothes. I break out a jacket. I call a lady about a haircut. She's busy, so I don't get one, right? It's true. It's been a year and a half. I've had one kind of hanging around in there. But I thought, hey, Easter's a good time, right? We get our best on, we think about lunches, we do all these things with family, and it's got all these celebratory things attached to it. But the first Easter was really not that. It was confusion, and it was fear, and it was a whole lot of what do we do now? Now Jesus is going to make a whole bunch of other resurrection appearances which are going to iron some things out, but on that day, there was a lot of fear, and they were afraid of the Jews, and most of the people in that room thought they were going to die. And so this morning, we come knowing that we are fully alive in Christ. But on that first Easter morning, there was a real fear of death. And by the time the night unfolds, they're gathered together wondering if the door is going to be knocked upon and they're going to be carried off for their own crucifixion or death. So the doors were locked. They were afraid. And Jesus comes and he stands among them. And I think this is really neat because... Jesus could have announced, he knows they're afraid, he could have announced his coming. He's like, hey, it's me, I'm out here, just a heads up, nobody panic, I'm coming in. He doesn't do any of that, he just walks into the middle of their fears, through the locked doors, miraculously appears in the room, and he says, peace be with you. He just shows up in the middle of their fears, knowing full well that all of these disciples are petrified about what comes next, even their own life. Could we lose everything here? Did everything we believe in Jesus, what is happening? We've heard rumors that he's not here. We know that we might be next. What do we do? How do we go on? What do we do moving forward? All of those anxieties and fears. And Jesus comes through the doors and stands among them and just says, peace be with you. He doesn't say it's going to be okay. He doesn't tell them all they're not going to die because the truth is many of those in that room will die for Christ. He just says, Peace be with you, which is the beginning of some incredible promises that are given to us through the resurrection. And the first is that idea of peace. Jesus doesn't promise them that everything's going to work out. He doesn't look at everybody and go, hey, listen, I know y'all are all afraid, given like the world's greatest coach pep talk, but don't be. Like, we're going to overcome. It's going to be awesome. He just says, peace be with you. And he shows them that it's him. He says, these are my hands, essentially, full real hands, pierced, side pierced peace be with you. He offers them peace. Which Jesus offers all of us when we put our faith in Christ, but most of us are uninterested in peace. We're interested in the answer to the fear question. 
And you would think that a lot of the disciples gathered there would be much more interested in, tell me they're not going to murder me, than I am with peace. Which is what a lot of us want from God, right? We just want you to tell us that you're going to fix it. I don't really want you to tell me that I can rest or it's going to be, you know, I guess okay. What I want is some answers, real answers. I want you to tell me how you're going to fix my marriage or my children or our financial situation. I need to know that with a fear that has seized me is not going to end in the scenario that I've painted in my head. And Jesus doesn't offer him that. He just says, peace be with you. Which is the great promise of the resurrection, actually. The first of these promises is the greatest one. It's, it's the promise of the peace of Christ, which is a peace that transcends all understanding. And my favorite definition of the peace of Christ is this. It's one that I sort of hodgepodgely wrote over the years where I've been thinking about what it really means to have the peace of Christ. But really, the, the peace of Christ is the mental and spiritual rest that comes from surrendering to Christ as your highest joy and believing that he is and always will be enough for you. Now think about that definition for just a minute. The peace of Christ, right? The peace of Christ is the spiritual and mental rest that comes from surrendering to Christ as your highest joy and knowing that he is and always will be enough for you. Now if you think about that for a moment, what Christ offers is spiritual and mental rest. Peace is not the idea of we're all going to get along. It's not the idea of tolerance. It's not the idea that we're not going to argue, we're not going to fight, there's not going to be any contentious movements or encounters. That's never a peace that Christ offers. We talk about Jesus, right, as the peace of the world, if you will. We are not talking about this idea of everybody holding hands, singing kumbaya, sharing a Coke, all of those things. We are talking about something wholly different. We are actually talking about Jesus giving spiritual and mental rest to those that are at war with him. As Paul would say, that once I was an enemy of God, right, alienated because of my sin. And the peace of Christ is the spiritual and mental rest that comes from knowing and surrendering to Jesus as my highest joy. Now look at the disciples' response. Jesus walks in and he says, and through those locked doors, he's standing with them and he says, peace be with you. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. So what Jesus offers is himself. And the disciples' response was this incredible joy. Because what they recognized is the presence of Christ smothered and trumped their fear. They were overjoyed at the idea of Jesus. If you want true spiritual and mental rest in your life, you have to come to the grips with the idea that Jesus should be your highest joy. That means higher than all of your career aspirations, higher than making all of your financial goals, higher than your kid getting into college, higher than this work thing, higher than whatever these goals are you think will bring you true happiness. That one more thing, not being single anymore, maybe going back to being single, whatever it is, right? The idea there is that bigger than all of those things, that Jesus is my highest joy. That there is nothing in this world or beyond it that compares to the overwhelming truth of knowing Jesus. He's my highest joy. More important than my family, more important than my children, more important than everything I've ever built or wanted in this world is the fact that Jesus is real. 
And in that moment, in all their fears, knowing death was at their doorstep, Jesus walks in among them and the disciples are overjoyed when Jesus says, essentially, it's me. Peace be with you. In other words, don't let your fear win. That's the first of the great promises of the resurrection, that we put our faith in Christ. He exchanges our fear for peace. And if we're still living with our fear, that's on us. It's because we won't exchange it for the truth that God has given us and promised us in Christ. So he says, peace be with you, and they are overjoyed. And the second part of that definition says that when we surrender to Christ as our highest joy, right? Once we do that, we have the spiritual and mental rest that comes from knowing that he is and always will be enough for me. Most of our unrest and fear in life comes because we want something else. We always think that whatever the next thing is will satisfy that part of our heart that is empty or longing. More friends, more this, more that, whatever. It could be any number of things. And it's always empty when you end up there because it's not designed to fill. Sure, there's moments and it's great and it feels good, but that always and forever will fade. The place that we are fighting to come to as followers of Christ is that place that brings us that says, Jesus, you are and always will be enough for me. Meaning if you strip everything from my life, every single thing, and I'm left with you, that is more than enough than I would ever need and more than enough than I deserve. As deeply painful as all that may be, if I'm left with Christ, I have enough because he promises to sustain me, to never leave me, to never forsake me, to clothe me, to care for me, and to carry me. And what he's offering the disciples in these moments of peace is he's offering himself to exchange their fear of death, their fear of the unknown, their fear of what happens now, which a lot of us carry. Maybe we don't carry the fear of death as much as we carry the fear of the unknown. What happens now? What happens next? Where do I go from here? What if this doesn't work out? What if the worst of all my thoughts actually comes true? God offers to exchange those for his peace, not for the answers, but for his peace that says, am I your highest joy? And do you believe I'll be enough for you? Then he goes on to supplement that promise with some others. And he says this. He says, peace be with you. And then he says it again, actually, just to make sure they heard it after they're overjoyed. Again, Jesus says, peace be with you. And then he gives them a few, a few more promises that sort of supplement this one. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. And if you forgive anyone, their sins will be forgiven. And if you don't, they won't. And for a moment, that sounds like that passage is a little bit confusing. Like, wait, did Jesus just give them the Holy Spirit? I think that happened at Pentecost some 50 days, seven weeks later, right, in Acts chapter 1. And, and is he giving them the ability to forgive sins? I thought that was only something God could do. The answer is not really, it's, it's more of a promise and a proclamation of what's to come. But there's some promises that are wrapped up in there that are, that are really powerful. And the first is this, as the Father is sending me, I am sending you. So in other words, my mission is becoming your mission. We are a sent people. We exist to be sent by God through the Holy Spirit to take the gospel to the world. We are not sent as a gathered people to come here and sit in our place and make sure that we're entertained for an hour once a year or once a week or whatever runs in between. We are not called to gather to a Western consumer mentally minded church that says, what do you have to offer me and my family so that we'll come back the next week? 
We are actually a people that once we surrender our hearts and lives to Christ, we are sent into the world just as the Father sent the Son. And you want to know what that message is? Do you remember Luke chapter 4? One of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture because it's a mind blower. But Jesus basically establishes who he is and his mission in the world in this little scenario. So Jesus returns to Galilee. And the power of the Spirit and the news had traveled around the whole countryside about him. And he taught in the synagogues. And everyone praised him. And he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day he went and sat in the synagogue, which was his custom. And he stood up and read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And Jesus is standing there and he's reading it. And he unrolls it. And he finds this place and he reads this out loud. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is Jesus reading this to all of the synagogue, including all the Jewish leaders. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And everyone in the synagogue was fastened on Jesus. And he began by saying this to them as he rolled up the scroll, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Which is, I mean, unbelievable, right? So he just walks up there and he basically says, all this prophecy about the Messiah, and today you've heard it because it's me. I am the one who has been given this message by the Father to proclaim the good news to the poor, to give the blind sight, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the Jubilee, to basically forgive all debts. And sent. Jesus says, this is me. And what he's telling the disciples is this. As the Father sent me into the world, I am sending you. So we become the sent people of God. That Christ, as he returns to the Father, through the Holy Spirit, as we're going to see, he's going to send us into the world. Which means you exist not to come here on Sunday morning and sit. You exist to be the hands and feet of Christ in your world, in your workplace, in your neighborhoods, in the world around you. You exist to share the hope and glory of the risen king that we just heard in the scroll of Isaiah. You exist to proclaim that truth to the world. We do, the church. The church is a sent entity. The call, of course, is not come and gather. The call is to go and tell. But somehow along the way, we have taken that message and we have turned it into something that's supposed to entertain me. So that I feel just convicted enough like I did something spiritual, but not really to give my life away. But Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. So the disciples, not just the 11, all those that have professed faith in Christ, they have this message. And then he says, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And if anyone forgives sins, they're forgiven. If you don't, they don't. Just to be really quick, Jesus is not giving them the Holy Spirit here. He's basically giving them a promise. The Holy Spirit's going to come, Acts chapter 1 and 2. We're going to see that as Jesus ascends into heaven at Pentecost some 50 days later than this. The actual Holy Spirit is going to come and rest on them. But Jesus is giving them a foreshadow, basically saying, the only way you can take this sent message into the world is through the Holy Spirit. You can't do it on your own. You don't have the power. You're not going to be empowered. But as followers of Christ, we are going to literally send you the power of the Holy Spirit. And that Spirit will walk with you. And he basically breathes on them saying, this is going to change you. Which means we can't do it alone, right? We can't overcome our fears alone. We can't overcome our anxieties alone. We can't take the gospel to the world alone. You cannot do enough spiritual things on your own. It's not going to work or happen. We have to have the Holy Spirit. 
if you've ever tried to live a perfect, good, moral life, you realize how quickly you fail. And you realize how quickly that we need the Holy Spirit to sustain us and carry us because left up to our own devices, we are weak and we are broken and we are sinful. And Jesus says, not only are you being sent, but we're going to give you the power to be sent by sending the Holy Spirit upon you who will guide you and lead you and convict you and carry the church's mission into the world, which means we don't exist as a church to do this on our own. We don't come up with our own game plans. Christ is the very head of this church, not me, not our elders, nobody else. You don't, aren't subject to people. We are all subject to Christ, right? All the priesthood of believers. And so he says, and we're going to be giving you the Holy Spirit. And so they're going to hang tight for 50 days. And the Holy Spirit, this incredible movement with tongues of fire, is going to come rest on them. And they are going to be anointed. And that anointing, it's passed on to all followers of Christ. So he says, I'm going to promise you the Holy Spirit. And then finally he says, and if you forgive sins, they're forgiven. And if you don't, they don't. Basically what Jesus is saying is that my very message becomes your mouthpiece. That as proclaimers of the gospel, the things that I proclaim are yours to proclaim. And what we have is this truth of God's word that he has given you and I that we don't tailor this to people. We basically say, here is God's word. This is how it exists and how it was and how it is and what he calls us to. And I want you to know the God that is alive in its pages. He promises the forgiveness of sins. He promises redemption. We put our faith in Christ. And if we don't, he promises us that there is no hope. That message that Christ proclaimed becomes our message. So the church does have a singular, true message and voice. And it is not just to bring comfort to those that need comfort or hope to those that are hopeless. It is to proclaim the good news of salvation to those who are dying. It is to proclaim the forgiveness of sins to those who are steeped in sin and death. The great end of the church, right, is to proclaim the goodness and the saving grace of Jesus Christ that comes in the forgiveness of sins. So I get all this to come to this place today. We're in the middle of a year where it feels like promises have been spread out, where discouragement has probably been around more corners than optimism, at least in my life and in my heart looking at the church, looking at life personally, walking through the things we're walking through. Optimism doesn't reign over every hill. But then we're drawn back to Easter. And we're reminded that in every moment of life's struggles or difficulties or fears or anxieties or worries, every one of those is smothered by the joy that comes at knowing Jesus is alive. Every single one of them. And in the middle of that, we have these incredible promises that we've been given. And the first of those is the most remarkable. We have the peace of Christ, which means you do not have to carry anxiety and worry and fear, whether it's about life or death or relationships or struggle or work or money. You don't have to carry that as your banner. Those things may be real, but Jesus promises you that he will give you spiritual and mental rest over all those things if you come to a place where he is your highest joy and you believe that he will always be enough for you. If you can get your mind to that place, he will let you rest. And if you're anything like me, it's not another hour of sleep that you need to feel rested. It's the peace in your heart that just needs to be coated in the trust of Christ. 
And in the middle of all that, he says, and not only that, but you're going to become the agents by which I'm going to take the gospel into the world. Your message is going to become my message. Your message is going to become your message. We're going to empower you with the Holy Spirit, and you are going to carry the banner that I have proclaimed. This becomes the call of the church, not to entertain the masses, but to take the gospel of Jesus to those who are dying. And Easter is the great celebration of that truth. And what we gather here to celebrate this morning, right, is not a once a year moment. It's an everyday drawing of breath that Jesus is alive. This morning I texted my buddy because I, I break out my jacket on Christmas and Easter, right? It's a great, it's like a super tradition. I got a couple, but I usually like this one. I feel less, anyway, fat in this one than I do the other. But I reach in the pocket and uh, I pull out years ago this bulletin for my best friend's dad's funeral, which obviously I don't wear this jacket very much, right? So I t- took a picture of it, and I texted it to him, and he's, he's a pastor in Mississippi, and uh, they're having a sunrise service this morning, which he was like, this is a huge mistake, long story short. But I texted him, I basically said, man, I'm reminded of something really incredible today. And that is this idea that the resurrection, right, Jesus is alive, is this incredible promise in the midst of crazy despair in a world that wants to tell you that life is Hard, and there's not a whole lot to look forward to. One of the greatest truths that we have is that Jesus is eternal. The death has no mastery over him. That what the promise of the resurrection is, that we put our hope and faith in Christ, that my buddy Matt, your dad who trusted Jesus is not dead, but he is fully alive in Christ and in glory. And if Easter means anything for us, it's the ultimate promise that comes in that peace, that whatever this world brings, whatever struggle, fear, or failure, it does not win. Jesus is fully alive. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to just gather here as a family, to have friends and neighbors and co-workers and uh, family folks that are here with us, Lord, to just gather in this place after, well, it's really been two years since we celebrated Easter together. And just in a simple way, with not a ton of fanfare or streamers or glitter bombs or uh, eagles flying from the pulpit or any of those things, just to celebrate Easter. The resurrection of Christ, gathered with the people of God, singing truth from Scripture as worship and opening up your word and letting it guide us. Father, your promise of peace trumps all of our fears and worries and anxieties. And you promise that peace to send us, to give us your Holy Spirit, And to let us be the mouthpiece, as a church, the mouthpiece of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, as we close our time in worship, make today something really spectacular. Make it a great reminder of not something that happens once a year, but something that is true and real at every moment, in every breath, and every second of every day. That Jesus is fully alive. And that I can rest. Because, Lord, I am surrendering to him as my highest joy. And Jesus, you always and forever will be enough for me. Let's close our time and stand together and worship, celebrating all who Christ is as our risen Savior.
Amen. Let's give the Lord a hand this morning. Again, we are grateful if you're here with us for the first time. What a privilege to have you in worship with us. We hope that you'll be able to come back and join us as we continue actually this movement of the resurrection of Christ through the book of Hebrews. But today is not just a one-day promise. It is a proclamation and the culmination of an incredible movement that runs through the whole redemptive history of Scripture that points us to this one singular idea. We are alive in Christ. Go in peace.